Welcome to Austin New Church Podcast. My name is Stephanie Swan, and I'm the children's pastor here. If this is your first time here, we're so happy that you've decided to join us. We are a progressive faith community dedicated to the pursuit of inclusion and social justice. Whether you're a beloved out-of-towner or just catching up, please enjoy this week's message. Good morning. I'm so happy to be here with y'all this morning. I'm Catherine. I'm one of the pastors here at Austin New Church. And I wanted to, before I start, just say real quick, when Stephanie was up here announcing about how they need more childcare volunteers, I did that for a lot of years at ANC. And I've heard the thing before about like, you should serve where your gifting is. I wouldn't say it's necessarily my gifting to serve with little kids, but it was fulfilling for me because it gave me connection to other volunteers and other people and it made me feel connected to this church. So even if you don't feel like that's like your natural ability, I would say give it a try, especially if you're new because it's a good way to meet other people and it's super easy. So there's my quick plug for the children's ministry. Um, If you've been around the last few weeks, then you know we've been sharing our stories here at ANC. We've kind of been sharing our why over on Instagram and Facebook. And I was thinking like, oh, I want to share my story too, but it feels a little bit self-serving because I'm on staff now, but I've only been on staff for like four weeks. So I feel like I'm still in that window where I'm, it's okay. It's okay to, most of my time here has been like just sitting where you're sitting. So I came here, my husband Garrett and I came here with our three kids about five years ago. um, And my arms were crossed and my heart was completely calloused over towards religion and the church. I was in that deep disorientation stage like Stan talked about last week, although I wouldn't have said that at the time. At the time, I would have said, like, this is where I'm staying. (laughs) Like, I was bitter towards the church, and that felt like my end point. Done. Dead. Like, no spirituality. I was okay with that for a long time, at least not Christian spirituality, Um, Because most of my life, I had been so certain kind of in the other direction. I had followed all the rules, like wholeheartedly, sincerely. I grew up in the church. I loved the church. I loved studying the Bible. Like, I did it for fun. And I, I know, that feels like a shameful confession to say in a progressive church. But I did. But it was a naive love. And eventually, like what happens with every naive love, every ideal, life experience like bumped up against what I had been taught was true about my faith and about Christianity by white men in the pulpit. Surprise, surprise. And my reality didn't match up with the ideal that I had heard. All of a sudden, I felt like I had done everything right and nothing was really working the way that it was supposed to work. I know it's kind of vague, like I'm not giving you many details, but it's not really just my story to tell. So if you want to chat more, we can chat more over coffee. But the main point is, I feel like my certainty completely dissolved in that stage of life. And when I came to ANC, I was really certain about absolutely nothing except that I never, ever wanted to get involved in another church ever again. Like I was here for my family, (laughs) but... um, I wasn't going to, I was going to hold it at arm's length. And that's okay, honestly. But never again did I want to base my community on something as shifty and silly as religious people. (laughs) Because I had just lost my certainty. I had lost my community. I had lost my sense of belonging and identity and purpose when my faith had shifted. And so I feel like it all exploded and I was left like sifting through the remains of that faith, trying to, not just faith, like whole life system 
looking for salvage, and at the time, and for so, so long, it felt like it was all dead. It was just ash. But I was surprised by ANC. I could hold it at arm's length, and there was no pressure put against me for it to be anything else. There was plenty of wide open space for sifting and for grief, and eventually space for me to have a bigger view of God and a bigger view of my sacred text and a bigger view of myself. And eventually it helped me find a tether back to a part of myself that I thought was dead, my Christian spirituality. What had felt like death to me, I see now, were really just labor pains. I was giving birth to something new. And if you've ever been in labor, you know that giving birth is painful. Like there is no other way without drugs. <laughs> There's no drugs for deconstruction. That would be nice. We need a, like a deconstruction epidural. That would be great. But what I gave birth to here... <laughs> <laughs> oh, what I gave birth to here, I think, we sang it in the song this morning, was an internal sense of belonging. Like, I belong, not just here in this spiritual community, I have a sense of belonging that I take with me wherever I go. An internal sense of acceptance that I carry within me in any community I enter, whether it's ANC or another one. And that's the gift that I want everyone to have. It's a gift of a spiritual space like this one that's wide open, where you have a sense of belonging, not because you just feel at home here, but a belonging without walls, a belonging that you carry inside of you. So I feel a lot of gratitude for this church. I really do. Um, imperfections and egos and humanity and mistakes I'm grateful that this church had the, direct, uh, the courage to move in the direction of love when it did, a wide open spaces view of love. So that's a little bit of my why I'm here, why I'm at ANC. Um, and this week though, we're wrapping up like a four week series on the Psalms. Last week Stan came and he talked about the Psalms um, as sort of moving through these different stages. And when I turned to the Psalm this week, I started to laugh to myself because it's not a psalm about deconstruction. It's a psalm of gratitude. And it felt right to me this week as I was reflecting on why I feel so grateful for this space and why I feel so grateful for you all. Um, like I said, we thought of these psalms over the last four weeks as poems, as prayers, as like expressions of the writer, of humanity, rather than theology. And Stan showed us how it, it the Psalms can be divided into these different stages in your spiritual development of like naive orientation and then disorientation and then reorientation. And that's a great lens for understanding the Psalms. Like it's mind blowing to see the Psalms that way. And I also don't wanna give the impression that these Psalms contain like zero theology because they are not doctrine, that's true. And that doesn't mean there's no theology. These psalms reflect an ancient people who were making sense of their human experience and their understanding of God. It was both. They're constructing their theology out of a lived experience, and then they write it down as prayers, as songs, as poems. There's actually a term for this kind of theological outworking through self-expression. It's called theopoetics. 
It's an understanding of God that sort of springs up out of the soil of a lived, human, felt experience, which if we're honest, isn't that what we're all doing with theology anyway? Really? We can say it's utterly rational and logical and analytical, and yes, there are those parts of our theologies, but I think really we're all just describing an understanding of God that we've derived based on our own experience in some way. So if your theology is different than mine, it doesn't mean one of us is wrong in a cognitive way. It means we've lived different lives. We each see one part And maybe if we listen to one another rather than trying to convince one another, then we'll both gain a greater understanding of the whole. Rilke, I love Rilke, and you're going to learn this about me, Rainer Maria Rilke. He wrote about God. You are the deep innerness of all things, the last word that can never be spoken. To each of us, you reveal yourself differently to the ship as coastline and to the shore as a ship. As soon as you try to put an image to God, I think you've missed it because God is boundless. God is infinite. And how can you press infinity into the corners of language? How can you stuff it into the box of metaphor? You can't. So why do we even try? Like, why are we here? What's the point? I think it's because that boundlessness of God is inside of us too. We're made in God's image. We have a creative spark. We are meaning makers, not just meaning absorbers. And so we process our life and that meaning through the art that we make, through story and by naming it. And so, since you all are just as much of a meaning maker as I am, I want to do something really different today. (laughs) So if you don't like change, just take a deep breath. It's okay, you don't have to participate. But at the end of each aisle, it's every other aisle, I put the printed psalm and some crayons. So take one and pass it down. Um, You'll just have to pass it back and weave its way through. Make sure everybody gets one. I'll give you, while you're doing that, I'll tell you where I got this idea. So I got this idea from my friend Amy Smith, who teaches English at McCallum High School. Teachers are so wise, (laughs) they're just brilliant. And she said when she teaches poetry, With her students, she has them circle the phrases that strike them, that like hit them right in the solar plexus. And then she reads the poem aloud again, but this time her students, when they get to the phrases that they circled, they read that part out loud with her. So like if it's a word, they read that word out loud. That means they get to voice what meant something to them as an individual, and they get to hear what meant something to the people that they're in community with. I think that's so beautiful. So I'd like to do that with you today if you're up for it. As I read, you can circle with the crayon whatever strikes you. Maybe it's a word, maybe it's a phrase, maybe it's the whole thing, maybe it's absolutely nothing. That's okay. This is optional. If you're like, I don't care about the Psalms, That's you making meaning out of this experience, too. So I won't be bothered if nobody circles anything or says anything out loud with me in a second, truly. You may just need to let this moment come and go. But if you'd like, listen as I read our psalm aloud in just a second. Follow along with your paper and circle anything that hits you. Psalm 138, a psalm of thanksgiving and praise of David. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. 
I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted your name, your word, above everything. On the day I called, you answered me. You increased my strength of soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. They shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he perceives from far away. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve me against the wrath of my enemies. You stretch out your hand, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. So I'm going to read it out loud for us again, and this time I want you to read out loud with me when you get to the phrases that you circled. So if you circled my whole heart, when we get to that part, you'll just say out loud, my whole heart. That's simple. We're all going to be speaking at different times, right? Because we all circle different things. That's okay. And again, this is optional. Don't do anything that makes you feel uncomfortable. But let's read it again and read aloud with me when we get to the parts you circled. Psalm 138, Thanksgiving and Praise of David. I give thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted your name, your word, above everything. On the day I called, you answered me. You increased my strength of soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. They shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he perceives from far away. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve me against the wrath of my enemies. You stretch out your hand, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose in me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. That was beautiful. Oh, that's so beautiful. Oh my goodness. Thank you for sharing your voice in this space. It um, warms my heart so much to know that it's a mutual interaction between the two of us. When I did this, because I did the same thing for myself, there were three phrases that hit me, and, and they were the ones that I heard most loudly, whatever, from y'all too. <laughs> the first one was in verse three, on the day I called, you answered me. This hit me because at first glance, this psalm looks like it's a psalm of praise to this God who is high and big and kingly and loud and holy. And yet, in this psalm, who initiates and who responds? We initiate, the psalmist initiates, and God responds. A couple of weeks ago, we saw a psalm, and Jason preached on this, that said the opposite, that God is the initiator and we are the responder. And that's what the psalm said. It contradicts this. But you know what? That tracks with the Bible. 
It tracks with the Psalms. They contradict and disagree with themselves all the dang time. In fact, this Psalm has contradictions within it. If you look at the last verse, in one breath it says, God will fulfill his purpose for me, like complete confidence. And then immediately after, please God, don't forsake the work of your hands. So which one is it? Is it confidence or uncertainty? I don't know. It's as if these Psalms are having an argument with themselves, a conversation with themselves, as if they're meant to invite us into that conversation. And the Hebrew tradition, the study of the text, is just as important as the words on the page. The conversation and the questions that we bring into the text matter as much as the text itself. And the Psalms pull us into that conversation with their ambiguity. So two weeks ago, we read a psalm where God initiated and humanity responded, and now we see a God that does the opposite. This sense of dual agency is also not a new concept in the Hebrew tradition. We have as much agency with God as God has with us in the Hebrew Bible. People wrestle with God, and sometimes they prevail. The love, the interaction between Humanity and the divine is mutual, and I know this may sound so strange, but I think it's reciprocal. We co-create, and I would say, and maybe this is a stretch for you theologically, that it's almost interdependent. The second thing that hit my heart from this psalm was in verse 6 where it says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. High and low, God is both. He notices, or God notices all. God sees all. God is not far off. God is near. God is intimate even with the ignored. God is intimate with the invisible. God is intimate with you and your thrumming heart and the soles of your feet and the crown of your head in the nerve endings of your fingertips. God is in the way you live your life and how you use your body. Why does that matter so much to me? Why does it matter that God is both high and low, far off and near, macro and micro, expansively vast and shockingly intimate? It matters to me because for most of my life and the pattern I see in so many religious people is that we live this life in the vastness of God and we forget about the nearness of God. We want a God who draws a crowd. And this may not be true for you or you are. Something I saw sort of in the arc of my life. A God who puts on a good show. A God with a grand vision and a sweeping plan and mass change and revolution. Somebody who overturns the system. Or at least if not that, then just a really good transformative experience. And yes, love is big. But never at the sacrifice of the small. Never at the neglecting of the very boring, ordinary needs that are right around you. If you yell a message of love to the masses, but you forget to love the people under your own roof, in your own little community, in your own family, in the unseen and hidden ways that won't get applause, that won't make a good photo op, and that won't check a box on a list of goals, then that is an empty love, not a divine love. That is an ego love. Don't forget that God's love permeates every scale, large and small. The dishes that you do when the kids go to bed. 
the eye contact that you make even though you're freaking tired, the organized packing list that you write for the road trip, the new friend that you introduce yourself to at Community First, the kindness you show the HEB clerk, the check you write for college, the baby's cry you soothe as you stumble through the dark, even though your body feels like it's going to break, and you know what? Your baby will never even remember that you did this. That's a divine love. It's a love that's, low to, that's near to the low. And you know who modeled this for me? My mom. We have deep theological differences, but she has modeled a life of love as best as she can. It won't be written on a history book, and it won't be engraved on a statue, but it's engraved in my heart, and it spells out love. And it's a tether that connects me to her and her mom before her, and it runs through me to my daughters and their children. It goes on and on. It's an invisible cord, and it connects us all sort of to this source of love. I know we didn't all have a parent like that, but I think even still you send a message ahead of you to the future generations in the way that you live your life, in the hidden and unseen ways that you love the people around you. It will have ripple effects long after you're gone, I promise you. The small work that you do matters. It matters more than anything else. More. More than anything else. Um, it's the steadfast love of God. It's what makes it go on and on because we're embodying it on and on. And it's why we meditate on a loving God in the Psalms because it reminds us how to embody a loving God. In her book, The Awakened Brain, Dr. Lisa Miller talks about two different brain states, an achieving state and an awakened state. And neither one is better than the other. They're just different. But I think the achieving state is where most of us live our life, at least in America. It's like we're getting stuff done, checking stuff off a list, calling a client, sending an email, taking the cupcakes to school, check, 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 check. And the achieving brain is always asking us, what can I accomplish next? And our society rewards that. It's what makes you productive. It's what earns you gold stars in school. It's what keeps you on the payroll. Like, we do it for a reason. But it's only a part of us. It's not all of us. And living in that achieving state 24-7 is not good for our bodies and our brains. We need another way. We need what Lisa Miller calls an awakened state. I was talking to a friend the other day, and out of the blue, she just said, like, I've never been a woo-woo person. And I think her implication was that I am a woo-woo person. <laughs> she wouldn't be wrong. Um, but about a year ago, she said, I started to feel like everything is, like, connected. I'm like, are you one? No. She's like, everyone is one. Like, we're all part of this, like, fabric. We're woven together. I'm like, yeah. And she said when she started to open herself up to this idea that we're all connected, she started to see overlaps in her life, like a podcast would remind her of a conversation, it would remind her of this thing she read. And the most important part, these connections had deep personal meaning for her. Lisa Miller would call that an awakened awareness. That's all it is, a deep knowing that you are held and guided by love, by something outside of yourself. 
you're connected to a source, just like everything is. And this is the part that interests me the most, because she's a psychiatrist. She says that awakened awareness is incredibly protective against depression and anxiety. It's almost as if our bodies and our brains need that spiritual connection or whatever you want to call it. We need to know that we're connected to one another, that we're connected to this earth, that we're connected to ourselves and something outside of ourselves. And I have a feeling that that's what these psalms are doing for the Hebrew people. That's why they wrote them down. That's why they sing them in their prayer services and at the breakfast table and when they wake up in the morning. It's a cue for them to slip back into that state of awakened awareness. It's a spiritual practice. The Jewish people use prayer and the psalms. Different spiritual traditions have different cues. But the point, I think, is not the words on the page themselves as much as knowing and sensing in your whole body that you are loved and held by God's loving kindness. So it made me think like, well, what's my cue? What's your cue? What helps you slip into that state of presence? Maybe it's this. Maybe it's Sunday mornings. Maybe it's noticing the sky like a friend of mine does. Maybe it's just pausing to breathe. Maybe it's an affirmation or a prayer or a verse. Maybe it's yoga. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's some kind of music or watering your tomato plants or enjoying a fine cigar. I think all of those things are spiritual practices. And I think noticing what it is for you and practicing it, our bodies need that, not just our hearts. And I don't know, maybe you're thinking, I don't have one. I don't know what mine is. I don't know what that feels like. Just experiment. What might help you sink into a space of release, of openness? I think your body will tell you if you start to look. The third thing that struck me was this phrase, my whole heart. This hit me because I didn't feel it. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if I can feel joy and gratitude with my whole heart, honestly. That feels like a tall order for me. The psalmist says they're fully experiencing joy. And I, over the last few months in my life, I feel like I've had all these good things come into my life and I can't really sink into any of them at all. I'm holding myself back from fully feeling it, from fully believing that they're real or that they're gonna stay. And Brene Brown helps me understand why. She says, joy is the most vulnerable emotion we experience. Really, Brene? Joy? I would think, vulnerab I think vulnerability and I think like fear or shame, but not joy. That sounds good. It is so true. And she, ex she goes on. I'll explain why she says that in a second. But she says, if you can't tolerate joy, what you start to do is you start dress rehearsing tragedy. Oh, gosh, Brene, seeing right into my soul. <laughs> yeah. So why? Why is joy such a vulnerable emotion? In Braving the Wilderness, she talks about this. She says, the more fully we feel joy, the more vulnerable we are to the risk of it being taken away. And when we open ourselves up to the possibility of feeling it deeply, we're open to the possibility of losing that feeling. We make our joy visible to others, like tell other people how excited we are about something. That's even worse because 
you are showing them what matters most to you and how they might hurt you most deeply. And if you've been betrayed or have someone take something away from you in your past, there's this fear of like letting others see what you truly love. You don't want to be hurt again. So, yeah. There's a vulnerability to joy that I, and I think, I don't know if you do too, but I either avoid or I become anxious that I'm going to lose it. It shuts me down before I can fully sink into the security of pleasure and connection. But why do we dress for her tragedy then when we feel overwhelmed by joy? I think because that, that hypervigilance, that like, what if, too good to be true, waiting for the other shoe to drop, leave before you get left, it helps us feel in control, it makes us feel safe, but it also shuts down joy. And Brene says we simply cannot know joy without embracing vulnerability, and the way to do that is to focus on gratitude and not fear. Gratitude, isn't that interesting? That is the antidote to fear's poison, and it releases us to sort of fully experience joy. Strangely enough, the ancient people knew this long before we had the sociological research to back it up. That's why they rehearsed it in the Psalms. They knew it helped them. It's why they carved it into their brains through repetition. Gratitude rewires your brain. I'm not talking about false positivity, like toxic positivity. I'm not talking about ignoring the bad stuff in your life. I'm talking about experiencing all of it, the beauty and the terror. And sometimes beauty comes into our life but our lens has been so narrowed by fear and suffering that we can't see it. Gratitude removes those blinders of fear so you can see the wide horizon of divine love. So next time you get that sense of foreboding joy, remember the Psalms. Remember that joy is vulnerable. Yes, you will lose things, yes, but if you name the gratitude, you plant some of that joy deep into the soil of your nervous system. Next time you feel afraid, you'll lose something good. Say to yourself, I'm grateful for this moment of joy. I'm grateful for the courage it took for me to get to this moment of joy. I'm grateful for the people, things, and experiences that opened me to this moment of joy. And I'm grateful that no matter what happens in the future, this moment of joy is happening now and it leaves an imprint on my body in an enduring way. Rehearse the good. Rehearse the joy. Rehearse the gratitude. As I wrote that, I'll be honest, I argued with myself, just like the Psalms. Because <laughs> I was like, how can I say rehearse joy while queer support groups are literally being shut down at our universities? with all the suffering on the border, with the impending climate crisis, with the growing strain of white nationalism that just won't die. We don't need joy and release. What we need is anger and action. And yes, there is room at God's wide, wide table for anger at injustice. And I'm encouraging you and I'm encouraging myself, let's make room for joy too. Pray with me. God of joy, your goodness sparkles like the sea. Give us eyes to see the wide horizon of your love, even as it laps the shore. 
Give us ears to hear the waves of your laughter, even as it leaks from our lips. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Austin New Church Podcast. To stay connected, follow us on our Facebook and Instagram pages and head over to austinnewchurch.com where you can get added to our mailing list. Our services are also live streamed on Facebook and YouTube on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. if you'd like to receive the full experience. We're so grateful for who you are and who you're becoming.